Today is Easter, and I am glad to see pink and plaid and blues and uh, all the colors that we, we usually have. And uh, for many of you within your circles of influence, as maybe in mine, you'll know that uh, Easter for many people is, is sometimes a joyous time, right? We think about it and we're like, Easter! Uh, for some people, Easter is nothing more than just kind of like a holiday where you kind of go watching kids chasing Easter eggs like a, fum- like a fumbled football, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, ready, sit, go! Ah! And, and uh, you know, all the while, uh, contemplating whether or not it's a good idea to consume 3,000 calories of peeps in one sitting. Some of you know what that's like. I... Obviously, you cannot do that. Uh, heart-healthy diet doesn't allow for that, but, you know, I can watch you. I can watch you, so. Now, let's just be honest. Even if you consider yourself a church person, it's easy to become numb regarding how weird Easter holiday can seem. For example, there are these traditions around Easter that, <laughs> that honestly don't, like, if you thought about them long enough, you'd be like, those really don't connect. <laughs> like, there's this religious part about Easter, but then we're, like, decorating and hiding eggs, right? So, you know, are we doing this because, like, God hates eggs and we think we're hiding them from him? I don't know. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'm not sure what your thoughts about Easter are. Maybe, maybe it doesn't mean a whole lot to you personally, but maybe you showed up because going to a church gathering on Easter Sunday is a, is a family ritual, and you got to tell grandma before you go see her that you did go to church in the morning, and so you just kind of have to do it. Or maybe, maybe you were told that you wouldn't be allowed to eat ham unless you came with family. And I, I, regardless of why you're here this morning or where you're coming from, I am so glad that each and every one of you are here. And uh, if you happen to feel like on the outskirts of everything that is church and religious, I just want to let you know that uh, we started Clarity Church almost eight years ago. Can you believe that? Wow. Um, And we started Clarity Church so that a community, and, and it wasn't pretentious. We're not saying that there aren't communities out there that are like this. But we just felt like God was asking for another community of faith with whom it's okay to admit that you haven't figured out whether you believe everything you've heard about Jesus in the Bible. And this is because at the end of the day, those of us who consider ourselves a part of clarity simply want to be a community centered on the gospel with whom any person can honestly explore faith in Christ and find themselves connecting to a God who loves them and desires to be loved by him in return. So if you've ever grown up, uh, grown up going to church gatherings or, or maybe knew people who were church people or happen to find yourself scrolling through social media and stop to uh, listen to so-called Christian influencers, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, okay, anyways, those don't even get me started. Uh, you may have been led to believe a few myths about faith. And maybe you've heard a couple of these myths. Uh, this is one big myth that I, uh, I often see uh, perpetuated, which is this, that faith equals blind belief and certainty. Have you ever heard of that or known people who had that idea like that? In order to have faith, you kind of, you just kind of got to go with it and you have to be certain, but you don't really know why, but you just are blind about it. You know, there's this game that you can find at most any uh, fair where uh, there's a bell at the top, right? And you have a, a big sledgehammer. And the goal is to take that sledgehammer and with maximum effort, do what? Smack the little thing on the bottom that like shoots the little, whatever it is, the disc or 
ball up. And, and, and the thing is, if you have more effort, the more effort you put into it, the more reward you get. And the hope is that you would have put enough effort into it that it would eventually would what? Ring the bell, ring the bell. And then if you ring the bell, you get to take home an oversized stuffed animal that now you don't know where to put it and your parents are mad at you. Like, why are you bringing that thing home? And like, do you know where it's been? It's been sitting outside. We don't even know where it's come from. Anyways, so um, that's my PTSD regarding uh, state fear um, stuffed animals. But anyways, where was I going with this? Oh yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, a lot of people, they, uh, they think of their faith in the same way. They have this faith-o-meter where they measure the genuineness of their faith in terms of how much they feel certain that God is real. And this idea that pursuing faith in God requires absolute certainty, that if you have any doubt about what you're interpreting the Scripture to be saying about who God is, then the relationship that God desires to have with you, unfortunately, is at risk. This is a, I would present to you, it's, 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 a very, it's a very damaging way to pursue faith. Because the problem with this kind of paradigm of faith is that it sets up doubt as being like opposite to faith. Like here's faith and here's doubt. And you, you don't want to have any of this because it's completely opposite of faith. In other words, if your faith in God is equal to certainty, then that means that any form of doubt or questions you might have about the existence of God or even about his role in the world would be considered the opposite of faith or sometimes anti-faith. I've watched social media and how people react to those who might express doubt, and I've been quite frankly disappointed in the way church leaders and people who are supposed to represent the heart of Jesus who welcome the sinners to come as they are, cast people out, and even label them as anti-faith. And here's the problem with that kind of thinking. Suppose you believe that faith equals blind belief and certainty, and you should never doubt. In that case, the definition of faith, and listen to this, that definition of faith can cause you to look for evidence to support what you already believe. Instead of starting with a, a blank slate, so to say, and exploring what genuine faith looks like through the lens of Scripture, what you will do is you will begin with your own picture of what you think faith in God is and only search for evidence supporting what you already believe. And this, unfortunately, and inevitably leads to another problem, and this kind of thinking will eventually find you doing things like this. <laughs> Building relationships with only those who agree with you and unfairly criticizing and feeling, wait for it, targeted by anyone who disagrees with you. Think about it. If you are taught that certainty in God's existence is what your eternity is resting on, <laughs> then that is where you will start. And you will find any reason you can make to make that true. And you will only surround yourselves with people who think the same as you because surrounding yourself with anyone that would contradict that would make you do what? Maybe doubt. And you can't have doubt. And that approach to faith is precisely why Christians and the church have, and just be honest, for a long time, 
have earned the reputation of being judgmental, bigoted, etc., etc., etc. And this is where it comes from. And as long as you never leave the cozy confines of your circles of influence that you've built for yourself, <laughs> your faith may never come under any doubt. Maybe that's what you want. But suppose you engage with the Scriptures in the context of a Christian community with an open heart and mind and the intent to learn about the truth of who God is and what He's up to in the world In that case, I believe that you will be led to a different idea than what I've been talking about regarding faith and doubt. Maybe a different idea about faith and doubt that you'll actually be able to find some way for it, clarity on. Here's the thing. If you look at faith merely in terms of measurement, you will always view doubt as the opposite of faith, but throughout the teachings of Jesus, the writings of his disciples, and everything else, quite frankly, we find in the scriptures, we learn that faith is described or defined in terms of relationship, not measurement. This is because faith is the willingness to commit to a course of action, not because of certainty, but because of, and I'm stealing this from another pastor, but uh, it's just really good, so I'm just reusing it. But it's, it's this idea that we have faith not because of certainty, but because of a reasonable amount of trust. Think about it like this. When Leona and I got married, uh, I did not have certainty about the future. Now, I was young, and when you're young, there's a lot of certainty that you think you have, right? I mean, let's be honest. Uh, But even then, I didn't have certainty about the future. Obviously, after the recent events of my open heart surgery, I still don't. I still don't. What I did have when we got married was a reasonable level of trust based on what I knew about Leona at the time. I didn't have certainty that we would be married long enough to enjoy taking care of grandkids, as I see, as I know some of you love doing. I, I didn't have an amount of certainty that that was going to happen. Or, or that someday we would be able to, the, the only care in our life wouldn't be about whether we had enough money to pay for kids' college, all that kind of stuff, but it would just be about whether or not we were going to spend our time in Arizona or the North Woods, right? right? And that we could just argue about what we're going to do. Are we going to go to Arizona? Are we going to North, North Woods? Yeah, yeah, that's what I hear. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yeah, there you go. North Woods it is. You all heard it, right? You all heard it. Um, but I knew, here's what I knew. I knew enough as I looked at that, 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 that lady, I knew enough about her to take a course of action. I knew enough to say yes for as long as we both shall live. And to be honest, let's just be honest while we're being honest, uh, Leona was even less certain about the future. It was Trust me, it was much more of a leap of faith for her than it was for me. So let's just, let's just be honest. And you know what? This is true with faith in God. I can't, I can't prove to you that God is real any more than you can prove to me that God is not. I've heard arguments from the both sides, and uh, if you stack them 
Like, they have as many, as many arguments. And so regardless of your belief system, every one of us is putting our trust in something, (laughs) whether you know that or not. We commit our life to a course of action based on a reasonable amount of what we think is trust. That's why I believe that doubt is an unavoidable part of the journey of faith. Doubt causes you to ask questions. Doubt forces you to seek understanding. Doubt leads the way in exploring what course of action to take. I remember when I was in college, my dad and I got in an argument about some theological thing, and I'm like, and I didn't, I didn't, I even forget what it was now. I think it was something about, uh, can you lose your salvation or whatever? And he presented something. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, well, I don't know. And I spent probably the, like the next six months trying to figure out like, well, what does the Bible have to say about all this? And doubt was healthy for me because it helped build my faith. And as a matter of fact, if doubt did not exist, faith would not be possible because faith is not blind belief. Faith is not trying to convince yourself that something is true, even though you have a ton of questions. That's why you date before you get married. I didn't date very long, but I tell my kids, my wife and I dated for six years. Uh, but, you know, but that's why you date, to find clarity on some of the doubts that you have, to find answers to the question like, is there a reasonable amount of trust that I have in this person to say yes, to commit to them? And uh, by the way, here's a, here's a pro tip. After decades of uh, having the honor of come along, coming alongside of people who, who, who want to grow in their faith and, get, and engage in a faith journey with God, listen, if you want to have a firm foundation of faith in God, it would be wise to ask some questions, to bring some questions into that relationship as well. If you've ever had a child who meets someone that they love, what's the first thing you say? If they're a little older, what's the job? Where do they work? And if they came back to you and said, well, I don't know, but they're just so dreamy, that wouldn't be very wise, right? We should bring some questions into the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father as well. This is because if we're honest with ourselves, there are some things about the Christian belief system that are confusing and difficult to deal with. I'll just say it, even though you maybe don't want your pastor to say it. And while this may be oversimplifying it, when you come across something that you don't understand (laughs) or something that is difficult to deal with, you really only have one of three options. Again, this is oversimplifying, but just bear with me. One, when you come across something difficult to deal with, a doubt overcomes your life, one, you can just bury your head in the sand, um, or maybe you could ignore your doubts and choose to not deal with them. Uh, you could rid yourself of anyone who could cause you to doubt in the name of getting rid of toxic people. You know, I just want to get rid of toxic people in my life. And conversely, you can surround yourself with only those who are more than willing to oversimplify solutions to doubts as well by saying things that are not helpful, like, well, you just got to believe, brother. Two, uh, you can take your doubts about some of the things that come up in the Bible or in Christian circles and say, I can't believe that, so therefore I can't believe 
in God, and many have rejected God altogether. I've had friends, people who have been in ministry, who have come to the same conclusion. They come across to some doubt in their walk of faith with Christ, and therefore, because, be honest, they passionately pursued faith in Christ, and all of a sudden, when roadblocks came, they felt like in order to keep the integrity, they had to passionately not pursue faith in God. And so this seems to be the other option that people take in mind. Many have rejected God altogether because they feel like living with doubt while embracing faith in Jesus is kind of like living a lie, feeling like a hypocrite, and nobody wants to be a hypocrite. But then there's a third option, which is the option I would hope you would consider, which is this. You could lean into your doubts. Ask your questions. Commit to a course of action once you reach a reasonable amount of trust after exploring the doubts, after finding the question, the answers to the questions, but eventually committing to a course of action once you reach a reasonable amount of trust because ultimately, if what you believe in is true, it can stand up to your questions and your doubts. You know, in the rhythms of my everyday life, I have friends who would identify themselves from everything to being uh, non-religious. I, I don't know if you have friends that are not Christians, but I, I have lots of people that I am friends with, that I know, that run my circle of influence, and they range anywhere from people who are like, oh, I'm not really religious, you know, like, I mean, that's good for you, Phil. And then I have, you know, some friends that are like, they're, they're not like anti-Christian, but they're definitely agnostic, and they love talking about how there is no God and how science rules and reigns. And and the other, right? So like, like they're more than willing to have those kind of conversations, and they're very, very stimulating, and they're, they're very fun to listen to. Um, and, and that's the point, by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're figuring out how can you learn to help spread the gospel, live on mission more, it, it starts with listening. Um, and, and when I ask these people questions, because that's usually how you get to know people, by the way, um, when I ask them questions and when I get to know them and when I build friendships with them, I ask them about their experience with faithlessness in God, they usually say something to this effect. And maybe, maybe we have the same friends. You're going to be like, oh my goodness, <laughs> we have the same friends. Um, they say things like this. If God is, and then you insert their own conclusion of who they think a Christian God is. If God is blah, blah, if God is a homophobe, if God is, blah, blah, you know what I'm talking about? Like, if God is like this, then I can't believe in God, right? So they start with what they think God is, and then they go, because of this conclusion, I cannot believe in God. And usually, <laughs> this catches them off guard. My, my response usually is, well, I think I've got good news for you. I don't believe in that God either. And he's like, oh, what do you mean? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, what? And, and it's just a good op. I'm just giving you some tips. If you're just like trying to figure out, like, how do you connect with people that just really seem like they don't want to have conversations about who God is? And Unfortunately, many of those same friends have taken their reasons for not believing God. And, and here's, here's where it gets hairy. Those same people take those conclusions they've made about God and then they, they impose them on the person of Jesus. 
For example, my friends take issue with what they interpret to be differences in what can be read in certain parts of the Bible. Maybe they'll point to something in the Old Testament, like, oh, it says that this, God was like this. And then they'll point to, but, you know, but Jesus, he lived this way, right? You know, he was loving, and, blah, blah, and he was, you know, and then, or they, or they look to something that Jesus taught, and they go, well, see? You see? Look at this part. And then look at this part. It doesn't make sense. Your God's crazy. I can't deal with that, right? And that's what they do. And they impose what they have, and let's just be honest, some of them, some of them are, have taken a serious look, but most of it's just cursory reading or actually what they heard a friend from someone, say a friend, you know, friend or YouTube, um, and they're like, oh, well, I, I, can't, I can't reconcile with that. And listen, if, if, that's, if that's you, if you've ever been caught up in your doubts like this, I, I would, I would respect, respectfully want to submit that, um, as I tell my friends, like, I think you got it backwards. <laughs> in fact, the most important question that a person needs to wrestle with when it comes to engaging in a journey of faith in God is this. Who is your God, and what is he like? like it's really simple. Like, who is your God, and what is he like? Now, the hard part is like answering that question. The good news is that God answers those questions by sending Jesus to show us what he's like. Jesus probably said it best when he told his disciples in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Oh yeah, Phil, okay, all right, well, that makes sense, but what about Jonah and the whale? What about Noah and the ark? And, you know, is it, where's the ark at? And what about Job? I don't know, you know, what about all the suffering in the world? What about creation and evolution? What about all the questions rolling around in my head? Don't I have to have certainty about all those things before I start following God? <laughs> well, do you want the honest answer? Or do you want the answer modern-day Pharisees want you to believe? Yes. Because the real answer is no. This is why all the disciples of Jesus, when you looked at the messages they preached, sounded more like this in Romans 10 where it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, for a few minutes left we have together, I did a lot of talking, just to kind of set the stage. I some of you have heard me make this case before, and so I don't apologize for it, but I think if there's a day that we talk about this, this is the day. And I want to tell you why I place my faith in Jesus and commit to following him. I choose to follow Jesus because there is reasonable evidence, first and foremost, that Jesus raised, Jesus rose, raised that's not how you say it. All the grammar, I'm getting the evil eye from all the grammar people, please. There's reasonable evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. People on both sides of the conversation debate about this all the time, and there's movies and stuff. You can watch the History Channel, all that kind of stuff, and you can find it, and there's people on both sides. But here's the thing. If you listen to all of it, the general conclusion is that, I don't know, because nobody can prove it either one way or the other, convincingly, if, like, just looking, I just want to admit that. 
But I just want to tell you this. I believe that there is a reasonable amount of evidence in the resurrection for Jesus for me to place my trust in. Like if we just look at the number of like arguments, that's one thing. But when you look at the substance of the argument, to me, there's reasonable evidence. There's reasonable evidence to place my trust in. For instance, when Jesus was put to death, and by the way, that is not something that is contented in history, that there was a man named Jesus who lived and walked this earth and who was crucified and died. And when Jesus was put to death, all of his followers thought that this was the end. <laughs> like, nobody was saying, let's just believe he's going to rise. Let's just believe. Like, they literally were hiding because they thought that the, the government was... Like, nobody believed that Jesus was going to be risen from the dead, even though, like, you, when you read the teachings of Jesus, you're like, he, like, literally said it many times, guys. Like, even saying, like, even as a serpent must be like, did you hear all that? And anyways, so, but hindsight is always twenty twenty. But the disciples, they were all hiding and they were fearful for our lives. Yet today, there are 2.3 billion people worldwide who claim to follow Christ. It's like, you just have to wrestle with, with that. And how did this happen? It was, it was because Jesus' resurrection. Paul writes about the significance of this to uh, uh, of, of this to the people in a city called Corinth when he writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and he says this in verse 3. He says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died. Like, this is the most important. Did you catch that? Paul's saying, I'm passing on to you the most important thing. And here's where he starts. He doesn't start with the creation theory. Like, oh, is it literal seven days? Or, you know, seven, a day is a thousand years. And he doesn't start with eschatology. <laughs> like, well, you know, like, what will happen? No, he's, here's what he starts. Here's the most important. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he was buried. And he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. At one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. So listen, over a, 40, uh, over, over a period of 40 days, more than 500 people claimed to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection of the gospel. 500 people who were like, yeah, I was there, you were there, I was there, you were there, you were there, I was there, I saw you there, I saw you there, I saw you. No, no, you weren't there. Get off the bandwagon, right? I was there. You were there. And I believe those eyewitnesses have credibility because, listen, no one was getting wealthy off of saying, I saw Jesus risen from the dead. No one was being launched into celebrity status. No one was gaining any political power because they were say, able to say, yeah, well, I saw the risen Jesus. Have you seen the risen Jesus? <laughs> I don't think you have. I was like, well, I've seen the risen Jesus. So, oh, you think that's great. I've seen the risen Jesus. No one was, no one was like doing that. As a matter of fact, there were people who were killing anyone that would say that they were followers of Jesus. Yet people kept on insisting, listen, we're not making this up. It really happened. I saw him with my eyes. I touched his hands. I saw his feet. 
And the reason Christianity exploded overnight is because of the teachings of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus. Those, those are really great things, and the miracles are awesome. It was the resurrection of Jesus. This is the reason. And there were so many eyewitnesses to a resurrected Jesus that Christianity took off. In fact, here are just a few reasons I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The reason I believe Jesus rose from the dead is because Matthew, an eyewitness, and honestly an outcast who was cut off from the religious right because of the occupation he chose, wrote about what he experienced when he followed Jesus. The reason I believe Jesus rose from the dead is because a guy named Mark, who spent time with Jesus' disciples, wrote about him. The reason I believe Jesus rose from the dead is because of Luke, an educated doctor. He did some investigating and put things in chronological order. So we didn't miss anything about the life of Jesus. The reason why I believe Jesus rose from the dead is because a guy named John, Jesus' close friend, wrote about his experiences, even if he had to brag many times about how much better he was than Peter. Um, this is an inside joke for all you Bible nerds. See John 20, verse 8. Anyways, uh, the reason why I believe Jesus rose from the dead is because James, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote about a resurrected Lord by the name of Jesus. And side note, for those of you with older brothers and sisters, what would it take for you to admit publicly and put it in writing that you believe that your sibling was God and that you have chosen to make them the master and savior of their life? I don't think anyone would. I know my sister wouldn't. They would probably need to have accomplished something crazy though, right? Like maybe, I don't know, rise from the dead. <laughs> and the reason I believe Jesus rose from the dead is because of what Peter, the guy who ran like a coward, by the way, not me, when a middle-aged, when a, when a middle school-aged girl accused him of being a follower of Jesus, when he circled back and said, Jesus is Lord, and wrote about this resurrection power that we can all experience the reason why I believe Jesus rose from the dead is because of what Paul, who initially hated followers of Jesus, and took pleasure, took pleasure in overseeing their executions, what he wrote about his experience with the resurrected Jesus. And listen, I, I'm not going to hide the fact that it, in my life, I've still wrestled with some questions it might be like, you know, more nerdy type of things, but I still have questions. But listen, I've committed a faith in Jesus because there's reasonable evidence, first and foremost, that Jesus defeated death. And the second reason why I'm willing to place my faith in Jesus and commit to trusting him is because Jesus offers to freely forgive my sins. We don't like to think about the reality that we need God's grace to cover our guilt because we're so used to thinking in terms of being good. We love the idea that good people can go to heaven, and so we measure our lives on some sort of sliding scale. You might have heard, of, heard, heard this often, the illustration of like, you know, there's like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa who's like a nine or ten, and if you were to ask some, someone, you know, hey, where do you fit? If like Billy Graham mother trees are like a nine and a ten, and, and, and one is like the the like the, the, the axe murderers, where do you fit? You know, most people would say, well, you know, I, I, I'm not like a one, but I'm not like a nine. I'm probably what, like a seven. Seven's a good number. 
And we say, say things like, well, you know, compared to these people, I'm not good. But, you know, there are a lot of people who are ones and twos, most of them my coworkers, and I'm definitely better than them. So I can't, I mean, have you met my coworkers? Have you met my uncle? Um, and, you know, we get into this type of grading that, I don't know, just comes up from the top of our heads. And the problem with this kind of rationale is that it becomes this guessing game of where we stand with God. But the message of Easter is that you don't have to wonder where you stand with God based on your behavior. You don't have to somehow measure up because God offers the only kind of grace that can cover the guilt of your past. So to every one of us who has opened our hearts to the grace of God, you can be confident in where you stand with God. If you're an alcoholic, an addict, a pervert, or a victim, listen, God's grace is extended to you. If you've committed adultery, struggle with telling the truth, or you're a thief, but you've opened your heart to God, His grace is extended to you too. To the murderers, or the mama's boys, to the frat boys or the freaks and geeks, to the people who think professional wrestling is real, <laughs> chain smokers and everyone who doesn't use the left lane on the highway only for passing, to those who lean left and even those who lean right, to those who hide their guilt and shame through politeness and charisma, or to the bro dudes that throw down their weights in the gym and reek of protein powder in pre-workout. To every person who has ever done anything they knew wasn't good for them, I have good news for you today. Ephesians 2 tells us that God saves you by His grace when you believe, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ forgives sin once and for all. And if you place your trust in Him, you can be forgiven. You don't have to wonder what God thinks about you because Easter confirms that He already is willing and ready to accept you, but will you accept him? So, as the musicians come back up to close our gathering with one more song, allow me just to uh, state what I've already said, just because I think it's, it, it needs to be said. I would be lying if I said I never had any questions about things concerning faith, God, and the Bible. But there are a few things I have a reasonable amount of level of trust in. First, that God loves me enough to send His Son to sacrifice for me. I know that. Second, Jesus has the power over death and because he has power 
over death. There is hope for eternity. There is more to this life than just this life. And third, Jesus offers to forgive my sins. (laughs) And I don't even have to earn it. That I am sure of. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is actually inaction. To allow doubts to paralyze you into doing nothing is the greatest, the greatest fault anyone can make. And if we were honest with ourselves, we're all putting our faith in something. (laughs) And just know this, God is not rattled by our questions or our doubts. If you disagree with me, just open up the book of Psalms. (laughs) God is not rattled by your questions. Because listen, if something is genuinely true, like I know God the Father is. It can handle your doubts, and it can handle your questions. And so whether you are someone who loves and follows Jesus with all your heart, mind, and soul, or whether you're someone who you feel like you're on the outskirts and you just, I don't know, today as we sing and as we worship, I just want to invite you to continue. Don't give up in entering the journey of what it means to find clarity on who Christ is. Because here's the thing, I believe it with all my heart. If you can find clarity on who Christ is, it will change your life forever.